Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Position of Faith. Leonard Ravenhill once said, No man is greater than his prayer life, which I guess means that most of us are pretty puny then. We need God to grow us up to be men and women that learn when to kneel in faith-filled prayer and when to rise in prayer-gained faith as Elijah did upon Mount Carmel. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Guys, uh, it's a very unique and special message uh, for me. Uh, the way that this one came together, uh, it was I could almost say it did come together in a little bit uh, throughout the week, but it was a very, very busy week. And then I left on Thursday to go to Ohio, and I think I've given... You know, those of you that have sat through sessions this week, because this is the first week of an Ellerslie semester, uh, I don't remember how many sessions we gave, uh, but let's see, if we counted uh, Monday morning uh, as a session, even though that's orientation, and then uh, Tuesday was two of them, so that's three, uh, and then Wednesday, two more, so that's five, Uh, Thursday, two more, that's seven, and then Friday, eight, so you guys had eight. I think I gave 16 messages uh, this week because of traveling and speaking. I mean, they just booked me solid, like no break. I'd go from one thing into a different room to speak in another one, go straight into another room, speak, straight to another room, speak. And uh, so I have had a very full schedule. And so when you are a pastor someday and uh, you care deeply about the people that you minister to on Sunday... The preparation of a message is not just the preparation of a message, it's the preparation of a man. And so I must spend time in God's presence and ask God to tutor me in his truth. And then the overflow and the outflow of that, of my obedience to scripture, of me being changed by it, is what we have on Sunday. And so it's very unique in a week like this where there's really no time. How in the world am I going to prepare a message? And every week, and this is just my position in the matter... I have a confidence going into every week that if God's intending me to give a message on Sunday, I will have a message on Sunday. I tell you what, I've had some extraordinary supernatural things take place in my life to get a message on Sunday. And this week was one of them, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, And usually, I mean, one of the things that Sandy and I joke back about, because I'm always sending her the notes and then she translates them into a keynote, and sometimes she's getting them late on a Saturday night, or I should say early on a Sunday morning. And, uh, but one of the things we've, we've always joked is that if, if it seems like God is waiting to the last minute and I feel unprepared, usually those are going to be the most powerful messages. And so I have a very high expectation this is going to be one very powerful message. (laughs) The position of faith. This past week in the Ellerslie semester, we gave a message called the anatomy of faith. And so all the Ellerslie students, I am going to exhort you to hold on to everything that we talked about. You see, faith, if you oversimplify faith, you miss some of the nuance of it, okay? It is a very real conviction of soul and commitment of soul to the fact that God's word is true, that God cannot lie. And his word bears his very same nature. And since it is the word of God, did you hear how straightforwardly I just said that? God's word is the word of God. I don't care what the emergent church says today. That's a fact. 
And if God cannot lie, his word cannot lie. And so when he speaks, we believe it. Hey, he said it. And I don't care if you don't feel it. I don't care if you've never experienced it. When God says it, you can take it to the bank. Okay, and so what we talked about in the anatomy of faith was literally making a decision, almost as if you're the judge in, a, in your soul. Instead of listening to the evidence of, the, nat, of the, the one attorney that's doubt, the one attorney that is the serpent in the garden saying, oh, come on, did God really say? You close off your ears to that. You turn your back onto it. And you say, yes, my God did say. And that's the walk of faith is you live literally with back turned, ears deafened to all noise, all arguments except the argument of God, the commission of God in his word. I, you may call it idiotic, you may call it ignorant, but I believe the word of God. And I believe it to be perfect and accurate. Okay, I don't mean every translation, every word translated is perfect. I mean God's word in its native text is without error. It is without flaw. It is actually divinely given to us as men and women. Okay, now you'll see that faith is in my title here. But this isn't the anatomy of faith. In the anatomy of faith, we broke down the construct of how faith works, how doubt works, how faith works. Okay, and by the way, that's online for any of you that have never heard that. It's a very important message. This is a different message. This is the position of faith. And that's not going to make sense just right off the bat. However, this is a term that has been growing inside of me. And it's hard to articulate. When, when God is tutoring me in something, sometimes I'm seeking a language. Because in, in some of you can identify what this is like. God's training you in something, but you don't have verbiage for it yet. If someone asked you a question about it, you wouldn't exactly know what to say. And that's where a lot of messages linger in my life for a season. They linger below the surface where I'm, I'm recognizing that something's important here and that God's training me in something, but I don't yet have a clarity to it. It doesn't have definition to it. And usually definition to me means language. When I can articulate it and I can say, okay, this is what is going on in my soul. This is a very critical thing for me. I am a man of faith. In fact, If we were to talk about spiritual gifts, which isn't a normal thing to talk about in an Ellerslie environment necessarily, even though it's a biblical concept, I have faith. I really do, and I've noticed that. There are certain situations where all those around me are very strong Christians, and I believe something very clearly. It's very specific. I'm looking around saying, do you you see the same thing I do? Like, no, I'm wondering why you're seeing it that way, and that clearly, Eric. And so I've begun to enunciate this. this is, it's like a gift of faith, an extra measure within the body that I have of faith. Because there are certain things that are just obvious to me. And I stare at them and I go, I know what God's going to do. And everyone's like looking at me like, well, how do you know? And Leslie has seen this happen. And she was here as a living testimony that when I get that sense, that knowing, it's a done deal. Eric just stands in that position and just hangs there. He is resolute. You do not push against me in that position. If you try and bring doubt against me, you'll get a roar out of my soul. Back down. Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, you don't mess with me when I get into my position of faith. And so that's what I want to talk about. You see, I don't believe this is just something that I am finding in my spiritual walk. I think it's something that every single one of us must begin to grapple with and understand because most of us... If you don't understand position, this is where I lived for so many years of my Christian life. If you don't understand position, 
You'll have moments where you'll see things, but you won't remain in that position that you gained in that moment. You see, most of us feel like Christianity just sort of ebbs and flows like this. And so if you hear something, you understand something in the moment, well, then maybe in the future you'll, you'll hear and understand the same thing. But you don't hang on to it. You don't grab a hold of it and build a place for it in your life and then put a wall around it and say, nothing will touch this. God has given me something and I will not let it go. We don't handle that which we've been given very effectively. And so therefore God gives us something and then we just drop it along our journey. This is a message about keeping that which is entrusted to you. We're calling it the position of faith. Now, some of you are reading Reese Howell's Intercessor right now, those of you that are going through the school, and there's something that Reese Howell says in, when he's going through his journey of faith that I remember catching me funny when I was first reading it. And I'll, I'll read the, the quote. Further prayer would have shown a lack of faith. What? Reese Howells would literally pray, and as you'll, as you'll find out, he had certain seasons where he prayed. It was like 11 hours a day. Okay, so this man is not against prayer. But when he was praying, he was praying for something very specific, and we could call that something specific, the position of faith. He was praying to get into a position where he knew that it was accomplished. And once he gained that position, then he actually made the declaration that to pray anymore would actually be a statement of unbelief. And I remember struggling with that, going, how does he know that? How would you know that? How do you know when to stop? And so this is a tremendous wrestling match for me. Well, now I've wrestled through that to the point where I'm actually giving a message on it now. Okay, so this is just letting you know that I've gone through that very same wrestling match. Here's the way I put it. There's a time you need to bend your knee and pray. And there's a time you need to rise up from your praying and stand in the position God has given you. Well, how do you know which one you're supposed to be doing at any given time? You don't want to accidentally stand when you're supposed to be praying. But you also don't want to be praying when you're supposed to be standing. So how do you know these things? Well, that's what this message is about. One of the uh, statements that we use at Ellerslie is, you know, the prayer closet. We, we also have a term, the man under the stage. And Nick Thompson's going to give a message during this semester called the man under the stage. It'll probably be one of your highlights of the whole semester. And that's not an exaggeration. It is one very, very powerful message. So a prayer closet is a similar concept. It's a man that goes to the side. He goes away from the public eye and he bends himself in prayer. Okay, now what's interesting is we know that men and women prayed in the Bible. I mean, prayer is a theme in the Bible. We also know that men and women have prayed throughout history. But what's interesting is most of us don't know how they prayed. For instance, when you hear about John praying Hyde, who would pray weeks on end without eating, when you hear about the men that wore out floorboards with their knees, when you hear about Reese Howells praying 11 hours a day, one of the number one thoughts that goes through our mind is, what did they do during those 11 hours? Like, what did they pray? How did they pray? And to be honest, it's a very challenging thing in Christian history because we're given the notion that they prayed, but we're not always trained and equipped for how to pray in those closet moments. And so if you feel that, I want you to realize I've agonized through that as well. However, you know what I've found? In coming to Jesus Christ and saying, God, teach me to pray. You know, the other prayer I've prayed, one of the most critical prayers in my life has been this. God, give me the spirit of prayer. In other words, God's praying. 
And he wants to pray through us. And so when I give over my life to him and I say, God, could you pray through me? Give me the spirit of prayer. He has prayers that he begins to burden my heart with. And you know what? Suddenly, hours can pass and you actually begin to know the answer to your original question. How did they fill these hours? It's God that fills the hours. We're just made available to them. But you have to go through it. It's sort of like telling, telling you, oh, marriage is amazing. But you have to be married to truly test and know what I'm saying is true. In other words, there's certain things that can only be understood by actually doing them. You can't just understand them cerebrally. Okay, so this is actually a peak, a rare peak, mind you, inside a prayer closet in Scripture. Okay, and it's not as satisfying of a peak as most of us would want. Because we want to know exactly what was prayed. We want to get the anatomy and the breakdown of every moment, of every drop of blood that is streaming in the, in the midst of the agonies. If we could just understand and wrap our mind around it, it would really help us. You know, we basically have two key prayer closets that we can peek into in Scripture. One is Mount Carmel and Elijah. The other is Gethsemane and Jesus Christ. And both of them aren't as satisfying as we want because we want more information. Because with Jesus, he seems to say a few things, but that's only going to take 15 minutes. I mean, all night? How does this work, God? Okay, now that's not necessarily what I'm going to try and solve for you today. I'm not going to try and solve how you fill 11 hours with prayer. I want to describe how this prayer works and the flows of it unto the point when you know it's time to rise up from prayer. It's a challenging thing for any pastor to cover, okay? But here I go. A peek inside the prayer closet of Elijah. Elijah hears something. You see, it has not rained in Israel for three and a half years. You know why? Because Elijah prayed and asked God to cease the rain from falling. And that was an obedience to God. That was a God prayer. Elijah agreed with it and then went after it in prayer. And I'm having to assume that the way he originally stopped up the heavens so that they would not rain is the same way that he's going to see the heavens opened and the rain returned to Israel. Now here's what's interesting. If you, any of you remember the story of fire coming down from heaven and consuming the altar, okay? That's on Mount Carmel. Well, Elijah is still on Mount Carmel. The fire has just come down. Elijah has literally killed the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. All of Israel has beheld the glory. I mean, wow. They said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And right at this point, Elijah seems to hear something. But it's something that is heard in the supernatural dimension of a man, in the spirit dimension of a man, and not with the physical ears. Because no one else is hearing it. You can call it the ears of faith. And this is where every prayer begins. This is where every project of faith begins. Is you hear something. Yet it's hard if someone comes up to you and goes, How are you hearing that? I don't know, but I hear it. There is a sound of abundance of rain. Now the skies are blue. No rain, no rain clouds, no, no rain in the forecast. It's been three and a half years without rain. And suddenly Elijah hears, it's changing. The rain is coming. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. Is he hearing rain in the natural? No. But he hears what God is wanting to do. And this is where every project of faith begins. You must begin to discern that which God is wanting to do. And when you know what God is wanting to do, well, what's next? 
Elijah went into the, the top of Carmel. It was the same place where uh, fire came down. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. So he hears what God is wanting to do. What is his response? He bends in prayer. You see, when you know what God wants to accomplish, how is it brought to this earth? Well, as a Christian, we understand that prayer is the means that God uses to bring that which is in the depository of heaven to this natural realm, to this earth. Prayer is God's means. Elijah knows that, so he hears the sound, and what does he do? He bends. Then what? And said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, well, Elijah, there's nothing. See, Elijah then sends forth his servant. Elijah's praying. Sends forth his servant and says, go look and check. See if the storm is coming. His servant comes back and says, there is nothing. And what does Elijah say? He says, go again seven times. In other words, he keeps sending his servant back and forth. Servant comes back, there's nothing. Go again. What does Elijah do? He keeps praying. Comes back, there's nothing. What does Elijah do? Keeps praying. Go again. Go again. Go again. Go again. This is persistence in prayer, also known as wrestling prayer. A very common name that we use for it around here. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, and this is the servant coming back, the servant says, Behold, there arose a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. There is suddenly an evidence in the natural realm. There is like a breach in the natural realm where something out of heaven has begun to move into this natural realm. And what's interesting, there is no rain in the sky. There is no rain falling. Elijah hears the sound of an abundance of rain. He prays. All that his servant sees is a cloud. And what does Elijah do? He rises up. He's gained his position. However, there's no rain. Isn't that amazing? He knows when to stop praying. We're going to analyze this in just a second. Whoa, what's this? And there was a great rain. Okay, that's always the end conclusion with God. Okay, if you hear the sound of an abundance of rain and then you follow through in faith with what you know God is doing, this is the end conclusion. So when do you kneel in faith and when do you rise in faith? It's a very critical question. You see, you have faith because you heard the sound of an abundance of rain. But then there is a gaining of that which is necessary so that you can quit praying and rise up and know and have a confidence that God has done it and it is done. It is over. It is accomplished. And you could say, but there's no rain. If there's no rain, how could you stop praying? It's a hard thing to enunciate. So there's two key misfires in the labor of faith. And I'm going to say faith is labor. It is, it is a form of work. Believing is the work of the believer. Which makes sense. We're called believers. Well, what do we do for a living? We work. And how do we work? We believe. That's our job. We believe. Our simple job is to believe our God. And that is one difficult thing. He says, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And guess what all the natural world is telling you? No rain, no rain, no rain. Not even a sign of a cloud. No rain, no rain, no rain, no clouds. 
seven times over, no clouds. And what do you do? You believe your God. Did you hear it or not? Do you know what God wants to do in this earth? He wants to bring rain to Israel. And so what do you do? Your job is to believe. And how do you show that belief? You pray. And you ask for the natural realm to bend, to prove that God is God and that he will bring rain. Okay, so two key misfires in the labor of faith. The first one is assuming prayer is unnecessary to bring the purchase of the cross to this earth. Oh, God's going to do what God's going to do. God will do it anyways. And so what do we do? We don't pray. One of the number one reasons that people don't pray is because they have a skewed view of how the sovereignty of God works. And they say, hey, look, God's going to do what God's going to do. So I don't need to pray and ask for it. God will accomplish it anyways. God, for whatever reason, I I realize that God could do whatever he wants, but he has limited himself to a pattern. And he has said it is prayer that will accomplish. It's faith that is the conduit through which I will bring my great work to this earth. He chose to do it that way, not me. It's our job to come into alignment with his system. He said that that's the way he does it. I just say, amen. Okay, you said it, God. This is what you intend. I submit. And so when we hear the sound of an abundance of rain, we don't say, well, he's going to bring the rain anyways. I heard the sound of it. And then we go our merry way. We hear the sound and we know that for that sound to become natural rain, to actually hit the soil of this real earth, we bend our knees. We plant, plant our face between our knees in the dirt if necessary and we begin to cry out, God, bring your rain. God, bring your rain. Show yourself mighty in this generation. Open up the heavens. And then what do we do? We check and see, is the rain come? No? Well, what do we do? Give up? Oh, God must not want to bring rain. Your faith is based on God's agenda, and he says, I'm bringing rain. And so you hang out in that position, bent on Carmel, until you see that rain come. So one of the key misfires of faith is assuming prayer is unnecessary. Look at the second one here. Assuming prayer is still needful when the position of faith is gained. Uh, Imagine, I I know most of us would not be offended if if the the servant comes back and says, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand in the sky. And, And Elijah says, that's not big enough. And he kept praying. I don't think any of us would be mad at Elijah. Most of us have no clue how prayer works in the first place. We would have thought it to be completely normal. However, I want you to see the Bible is giving us a pattern. The way we form our understanding of the way we pray, the way we live, is from the Word of God. And every story is measured. It's described in the exact way God intended it to be described so that we can learn from it and see the manner in which we can flesh out the life of Christ in and through our obedience. Elijah rises up and he says, that's enough. All right. It's done. It's accomplished. Go tell Ahab that he better get in his chariot now before the rains stop him. He knew that the rains were gained. He knew that it had been accomplished. And yet, look at the sky. There's, it's all blue except for... Yeah, okay. I have to admit, there's a little cloud the size of a man's hand. But that does not warrant the fact... And then all suddenly, thunder and lightning. He's like, well, maybe. You see... Elijah knew something before the rest of the natural world did. He knew. He First of all, he heard the sound. Then he prayed. But then he prayed until the natural realm began to give evidence. And then he rises up in faith. And by the way, both of them are a picture of faith. And it's mighty faith. 
For him to bend down and pray is a statement of faith because he believes he knows what God's doing. And then to rise up is just as much of a statement of faith because the natural realm had not yet testified to a great and mighty storm. Both dimensions of this are critical, and we must begin to discern how this works. Breaking down the labor of faith into its parts. The hearing. Discerning God's agenda. There is a sound of abundance of rain. That's where it starts. You must hear it. And it's hard to describe how this works. And I, you know, if you were to ask me, how do you know, Eric, when God is doing something? I I don't want to give some pat answer to that. You spend time in God's presence. How do I know when Leslie needs to get out of the house and needs to do something romantic? How do I know that? Well, I spend time with my wife. You know that I can tell if my wife's a little upset? It's a strange thing. You might not be able to discern it. I know. You know that she knows if I'm a little grumpy? Even though all of you say, it would say, Eric is just so constantly happy. Well, Leslie can tell if there's a little something off in Eric. How? How would she know? Because she spends time with me. It's sort of hard to articulate, but when you spend time with God, you know God. And you know what's on God's heart. You know what God is desiring. You know what God is leaning towards. It's, it's difficult to articulate, but you become sensitive to God, to his ways, to his manner. And you would say, I know what God wants to do in this situation. Someone could say, how presumptuous is that? But it's not presumptuous. It's actually a knowing. It's faith. You actually understand what God is wanting to do. Then there's the bending. Okay, you hear the sound. Then what happens? Knowing that God's agenda can only be accomplished via prayer. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. And then we have the watching. You see, as you are praying, you're also watching for the answer to come. You see, why? Because you're a man of faith or a woman of faith. You know God answers prayer. You're not just praying, saying, oh, I, don't, I doubt God would ever answer. You're praying with an eye to see that cloud form. Why? Because God answers prayer. He delights to answer prayer. You're waiting for him to come. And so there's a watchfulness of soul to say, watch what my God will do. Watch what my God will do. The cloud will form. Just watch. And then you continue to ply yourself in prayer to say, God, you bring it. But then you also watch with your soul to see it brought. And that's the watching, seeking the breakthrough in the natural realm. And said to his servants, as Elijah saying to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, well, hey, Elijah, there's nothing. There's nothing there. Is that going to discourage Elijah? No, he heard the sound of an abundance of rain. It's coming. How's it going to come? Through prayer. Through the prayer of faith. It's going to come. The persistence, wrestling until the breaking of day. Jacob grabs a hold of the man of God and he wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles until he gets that which only God can bring. That is the knocking. Knocking, knocking, knocking of the neighbor who knocks until the door opens. It's the nagging, the nagging, the nagging of the widow of the unjust judge saying, you must hear my case until the judge finally says, okay, that's enough. I'll give you what you ask for. It's the Canaanite woman who pleads and pleads and pleads with Jesus saying, my daughter is demon possessed. Jesus seems to ignore her at first. Then he actually calls her a dog and says, I did not come for you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And then she begs and worships and says, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the children's table. And he turns and says, woman, great is thy faith. That was faith. 
It was faith that grabbed a hold of God and would not let go. That's what Elijah is doing. You see, we see it seven times, and some of us would say, so does that mean that I only need to pray seven times, and then if it doesn't happen, that means the cloud isn't going to form? What do you think Jesus would say to that? Remember Peter? So if I forgive a man, do I only forgive him seven times? That's God's number of completion. You know, okay, is that just seven times? Seventy times. Seven. So say you did it 490 times. You come to God and say, I've done it 490 times. What do you think? 490 times, 490 million. Are you getting the point? You do it until, until the breakthrough in the natural comes. The persistence. And he said, go again seven times. The witness, the initial evidence that the prayer work is finished. You see, we pray without ceasing, by the way. In other words, prayer is never finished, but prayer in a specific arena can be. In other words, where something is gained, that does not mean you stop praying and prayer is completely removed from your life. It's like, yeah, I did my praying. You see that storm cloud? That, yeah, that was my prayer and now I'm done forever. No, there's plenty more things that God is going to commission you to pray for. We pray always with all kinds of prayers. However, in a specific situation of faith, there is a time to be bent and there's a time to rise up with full confidence that what was asked for was gained. Behold, there arose a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And when you see it, that's what you were looking for. And you know it. And you rise up and say, it is done. The position of faith. Now, here's what I'm going to call the position of faith. He has seen the cloud. And what does this mean to Elijah's soul? It's utter confidence that the rain is back in Israel. Now, you could say, it's just a cloud the size of a man's hand. Okay, that... That isn't really rain, Elijah. I think you're missing something. I know you've been so starved for clouds for three and a half years that I think you're misconstruing a cloud for rain. And Elijah's like, no, that's what I was looking for because it is done. It's accomplished. It will happen. It's called the position of faith. Utter confidence that the rain is back in Israel. This is what Elijah says at this exact moment when he hears the news about the cloud. He rises up and says, Go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. He knows the rain is coming. It's complete confidence that he's literally telling a king to get in his chariot and go, that the rains do not stop him. I mean, all there is is a little cloud in the sky. This is called the position of faith. Once gained, you do not lose it. When I'm talking about what you hold on to, when you have gained something, it is done. The rains are here. And everyone could mock you and say, there's only a little cloud in the sky. The rains are here. You better start, you better start acting upon this. Otherwise, you're going to be caught up in the floods. Because it's coming. The rain. The inevitable outcome of real working faith. The rain does come. The natural will come up to speed with your faith. And this is how Christianity works. It's called faith, which means it's the evidence of things not seen. You have evidence in your soul. The rest of the world is only looking at a cloud and you see a whole storm. You see, that cloud was merely a testimony that the prayer is not needful anymore. It's accomplished. But you still see the storm. You know what God is doing. And you rise up in full confidence. 
Oh, look at that. And there was a great rain. The position of faith is always after the test of faith. Now, you'll notice this, that that position of faith in that whole flow chart that we had came after a test, didn't it? Pure blue sky. I mean, can't God, when he says, you know, like, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain, just have a raindrop go bloop and land on Elijah's nose? And it's like, oh, oh, thank you, God, for at least a little encouragement here. And then it drips down, and then another one, bloop. And then it's like, and Elijah, you should pray for even more. No, it's a completely barren sky. Drought conditions. And he must believe in the midst of drought that rain is going to come back to Israel. It hasn't rained in three and a half years. You know, there's a lot of us with this fire up in the mountains here that are struggling with believing that rain can come today in Colorado. I don't care if they stick a thunderstorm in the, in the forecast. They've done that about three or four times in the past two weeks. It's not raining in Colorado. And so in the midst of wildfire season, 102 degree temperatures, we rise up and we believe for rain? I mean, there's an incredulity in the natural realm. Could you imagine the weather men going, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. That's the weathermen in Israel. You don't listen to the weathermen. You listen to God. And that's where your faith rests. What is God saying? That's where you build your confidence. If God says rain is coming, then by golly, rain is coming. The position of faith is always after the test of faith. For faith to truly be proven faith, it must be tested. Every bit of faith that's going to come out of your life, God is going to measure it through a test. You see, we're wishing that the rain would just start falling. Then we'll believe. Then we'll believe that God can bring rain to Israel. If it just starts raining, that's not faith. We believe because God said he's going to bring rain to Israel. We pray and we labor. We send our watchful servant out and he comes back over and over and time and again and says, there's nothing. How are you standing in this situation in your life? You know how many of us give up after one prayer? They come back and say, there's nothing. It's like, well, I tried praying. Obviously, God doesn't want to answer my prayer. God is the one that started your prayer. He's the one that said, I want to bring rain to Israel. What are you doing? Stopping. That's the test. If you fail the test, you don't get the rain. At the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, now listen to this line. After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Patient endurance, unbreakable immovability, Though the cloud, though it's a cloudless sky, though the the parched earth continues to stare back at you and you have this dry weed as you're bent over and you look up and it's literally like, and you say, rain is coming. I know it. I hear it in my spiritual ear. I know what God wants to do. This is the test of faith. After he patiently endured, endured, when did he obtain the promise? After his patient endurance. And the word patience I'm about to define for you, but it's a lot bigger than just waiting at a stoplight and not complaining. It is literally the ability to endure the greatest difficulties, the greatest challenges, and be unmoved and unshaken and undeterred the entire while. 
After patiently enduring, he obtains the promise. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. And some of you are like, that's really not the most incredible work there. I mean, God could do all sorts of things out of the trial of our faith, but instead he just gives us patience? Come on, I don't really need that. That's what little kids need. We need patience. Hupomane, okay, is the Greek word for patience. The brave, calm, and steadfast courage of the Christian soul. Now, here's, a, here's an even deeper definition. Unbreakable and immovable. To remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials, and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end. What does the test of faith produce? It produces that. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works, now let's finish it, with an unbreakable immovability. You are not daunted by anything. Your faith has been tried, and guess what? You have proven within your own life that you will not budge. God is faithful, and he is faithful always to all men who will simply trust him and believe him. We will not be made ashamed if we simply put our confidence in God. And that's what the trial of our faith ends with. It ends with an unbreakable immovability. We remain unmoved. We do not recede or flee. We stand amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials and hold fast our faith in Christ to the end. And so I know the name of this this message is the position of faith, but just for a, a bit here, I'd like you to understand what that actually means. It's the patience of faith. You see, patience is your position. It is an immovable, rock-like, fixed position in Jesus Christ. He has done it. You see the cloud the size of a man's hand. You rise up in your patient position. And you will not budge. You will not shudder, no matter what the enemy brings. No matter if that cloud takes ten years to turn into the full storm, you know what's accomplished in heaven. That storm is here. Everyone will mock you. Everyone will make fun of you. Even Christians will shrug their shoulders and say, a little extreme, cuckoo. And you say, here I stand. I will not be moved. The rains will come. You maintain your position. The position of faith or the patience of faith. I'm going to introduce you to a story which is going to build on the same principle. So we, we talk about Elijah, and now I want to talk about David, the shepherd boy. Okay, David, the shepherd boy, is being built for battle. He's being built to lead a nation. And just like us, we're not that impressive when we start out. You know what? The patience of faith or the position of faith is one extraordinary thing in the kingdom of heaven. When you gain it, I tell you what, there is a growl within your soul and immovability within your soul, and you are unflappable and unshakable in the time of the greatest testings. This is what we all want. We want the position of faith in our life. So look at David. Do you remember when David faced Goliath? Remember his unflappability, his immovability, his rock-like conviction that Goliath was going down? I'm going to present to you the notion that that is what would be called the position of faith. How did he gain that position? Do you remember? Did anything happen, have to happen in his life before he arrived at that day so that he would know that whosoever stands against his flock will go down? How did David learn this? 
He had to learn it through the trying of his faith, the practicing out of his faith. When no one was watching, he was prepared for the day when all the earth would behold. And Saul said to David, so David has showed up in the, in, the, in the camp, in the Valley of Elah, and this Goliath is boasting, okay? Forty days, on the 41st day, David strolls into the camp and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, because David has come to him and says, I'll fight him. And what does Saul say? You're not able to do that. Look at David's response, and I want you to recognize the position of faith in how he talks. For you are a youth. Rain's not going to come from these skies. There hasn't rained for three and a half years. You can't have rain. You can't tell a king to get in his chariot and start traipsing down the mountainside in a hurry. I mean, there's no rain that's coming. You're but a youth. How in the world could you stand up against the greatest warrior in this generation? You've got to be kidding me. And so, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Listen to David. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. And that's a comma there. At the very end of that, there's a comma. Listen to his reasoning. Seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. You see, uh, follow me on this. This is really fascinating, but David was actually king of Israel. I know he wasn't recognized as king of Israel in the natural, but he was. Truly in God's economy, he was the rightful king. However, his dad and his brothers did not see him as such, obviously. They put him over the sheep again. But meanwhile... He's with these sheep, and a lion and a bear come against his flock. And what does he do? He rises up as a king over his flock. And he brings about judgment and justice on that which would oppose the armies of the living God, who for David were his little sheep. Those are the armies of the living God. That was his practice ground. That was the trial of his faith. And now he steps into the valley of Elah. You know when he looks at Israel, you know what he looks at? He looks at his sheep. This is his nation. God has made him king. These are now his sheep. He is in his own pasture. And he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. That's a whole other discussion. Why in the world did Saul say yes to this? David may have had faith, but how did Saul know? I mean, this is craziness. Saul was the Goliath of Israel. He was head and shoulders above all Israel. He was the Mikey Hahn of Ellerslie, you know, head and shoulders above all other men. That's Saul. He's the one that should be going out to meet it. This little deadly squat David, who wasn't even invited to the battle, comes strolling in with a position of faith. He knew that Goliath was going down even before he fought him, just like Elijah knew that storm was coming even before the storm came. How did they know? How would they know these things? They were tried and tested in their position. I can imagine David saying, I hear the sound of a strong and mighty man who can protect his flock. I hear it. I know that God wants to build me into a man who preserves his flock, who preserves the people entrusted to his care. And so guess what? A lion comes into town. And David might have trembled a little. 
But he knows what God has said, and so he goes after this lion, grabs him by the mane, breaks his jaw, and brings back that little lamb. And even as he's looking at that little lamb and cuddling it, what's he thinking in his heart? God has given me strength. God will bring down whoever stands against my flock. He's learning. The bear comes. And now he's wearing a bear skin. And every time he looks at that bear skin, he says, My God will preserve me in battle. Whoever would dare defy the armies of the living God will not stand another day. You can just see it. He's growing. He entered into a position. And now he stands before Saul. And he knows his position. So watch this. So Saul clothed David with his armor. So Saul's armor. And he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor. And he essayed to go. So he's like trying to move in this armor. For he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these. For I have not proved them. Isn't that an interesting statement? You see, he had proved something. But he hadn't proved Saul's armor. He knew how to fight a lion and a bear, and he knew how he could stand against this giant. But then Saul was bringing his own mechanisms to say, this is how you need to do it. But David didn't have a position of faith in that armor. He had a position of faith outside of that armor. And so what an interesting test for even David to remove what would be the natural protection of men. And to say, I have not proved those. I cannot go in these. I know my position, and I do not need any help in that position. And David put them off him. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. It's everything that he brought into that battle day in the first place. It was proven to him. He knew That he could stand in it. He knew he could trust what God had already supplied him. He knew that when he walked into that valley, he had everything he needed in faith. Because, by the way, it took faith for him to trust in five smooth stones and a sling. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. One of the reasons the Bible goes out of its way to say, and he had no sword in his hand. The very conclusion of the story, that's what it says. It's like, do you realize this, Israel? That man that took down the greatest man beast did not have a typical weapon in hand. And he beat, he beat the most impossible odds. He took down the man beast, the mighty warrior that every man in Israel trembled before for 40 days. Who is this man? He was a man with a position. A position of utter confidence in his God that his God would win the day. David's position in the valley of Elah. That's where Goliath was. The test of faith. Well, the test of his faith was the lion and the bear. This is how he was prepared. The position of faith, though, for David. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. That's what he says. See, he had the position. And so he knew this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. What's your... I don't know how quick it... This comes. All I know is it's taken years for me to grab a hold of this understanding. And I hope and pray that you can just grab a hold of it today and live with this for the rest of your life. But here's one thing I know. When you gain a position, you never need to forfeit that position again. David gained a position on a lion and a bear. And when he stood up against that Goliath, that position was still true. You see, he gained a position... He had the faith, and therefore he walked in it. And in every situation, that was like it. 
From that day forward, anything that would defy him. You know what it says about David? I will not fear, though 10,000 surround me with evil intent. 10,000! He will not fear. Why? He had a position of faith. He knew his position. At the battle of Pazdaman, all Israel, it says, flees. And who draws a sword? David, against an entire army. Who is this guy that would have such confidence that God will fight for him? He was a man who stood in a position of faith. What was proven to David? Well, whatsoever threatens his sheep is going down. He knew that. That was an absolute matter of fact to his soul. A shepherd's weaponry for protecting sheep is sufficient. He knows he has exactly what he needs. See, most of us as men, we don't have maybe a lot of brawn and a lot of big bulging muscle. But you know what we say as men? We say, that which I've been naturally given is all I need to enter into this battle. I have all I need with my little shepherd's kit here. We don't have a lot, but we have Jesus Christ. And we have utter confidence that he's the one that wins the day. Once the position is gained, key line, it must be kept. Okay, now this is sort of a crux of what we're going to talk about. At Ellerslie, in your discipleship, you're going to gain some things. But there is going to be a niggling fear and concern in you that that which you're gaining could just go out the other side of your life tomorrow or the day after. In other words, you gain it, but you really don't have the privilege of holding on to it. I would like to entreat you to begin to realize that you have everything you need to hold on to everything God gives. He is not mocking us by commissioning us to hold on and to hold fast that which we've been entrusted. God gives you something he intends you to treasure it and to keep it. And when you are given a position of faith, you do not want to lose a position of faith. I don't know how many of you really want to have to go back and practice on the lion and the bear again. You know what? When you gain your position, keep it. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Joshua. This is Joshua's great speech at the very end of his life. He says, For the Lord hath driven out from before you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. Why? Because Joshua is at the helm. Jesus it's the same name in the Hebrew, translated into the Greek. It's Jesus. It's the man of salvation who stood leading the Israelites. And guess what? No man can stand against them. They had a position in the land of Canaan. They had taken territory. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God, he it is that fights for you, and he hath promised you. Now listen. Take good heed therefore unto yourselves. You see, a lot of us have a skewed understanding of sovereignty, and we say, you know what? If God gave me the land, he'll keep the land. What what does Joshua say? Take good heed thereunto yourselves. You better be watchful, because this land will be taken from you if you do not keep it. So take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Else, if you do in any wise go back... And cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. 
But they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Who wants to mess with that scripture? You know what? When God gives you something, keep it. Walk in that land the way God intended you to stay in that land. A th- one of you will chase a thousand and put a thousand to flight. It's an amazing thought. Is it actually possible to go back? You see, some of us are going, oh, God's already called me forward. I can't go back. I want you to realize that God's intent is to finish the work that he's begun in you. That's just what he does. That's his direction. But if you act slovenly in your soul, and you do not maintain an alertness, you do not maintain a guardedness of your soul, back is the only way you can go. I don't know if you could liken the Christian life to a mountain, okay? And it's like a, uh, have you ever seen an escalator going up? This is an escalator going down. In other words, everything in the natural realm takes you down. And so when we get on the escalator, we actually have to move. We have to be purposeful in our souls to progress. And when we gain territory, we gain a position of faith, we literally build something that on the way down, we know, big red flag, do not go back past this point. Stick it in the ground and say, this is gained. I've gained this height. I will not go back. And your vantage point from that mountain that you see of faith, you still have. Keep it. Keep it. Go up, not down. The natural progression in this life. It's funny. This is just a strange thing. But you don't have to get on the narrow way. That's like the narrow way there. You know, if you just sort of stay on the side of the mountain, there isn't that downward propulsion. There still is. You know, everything's sliding because it's the side of a mountain. But I tell you, if you get into Christianity, the downward pressure actually escalates and increases. And there is a greater pressure because literally you're awakening hell against your soul. If you get engaged with Jesus Christ, you go forward. You know what? If the Israelites do not head into the land of Canaan, you know what their life was a lot easier? There's 31 hostile empires in the land of Canaan. Same with you. Stay in the wilderness. Life will be easier. If you decide to cross that Jordan and take on 31 hostile empires, you need to know all hell is being broken loose. But if you progress, that land will be cleared. But you must progress and keep the land. If you take Jericho, imagine you take Jericho. The walls fall and then you move on. What do you think the enemy is going to do? It's going to come back to Jericho, rebuild the walls. You don't just leave behind a pile of rubble. You leave behind a regiment with that pile of rubble. No one will rebuild Jericho. This will not be reestablished in this land. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, that the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's just a depressing scripture. There's nothing edifying about that scripture. You're like, thanks a lot for bringing it up then, Eric. You could have skipped it. I want you to realize that there's a very real thing in Scripture known as backsliding. In other words, you're supposed to go up, but there is a very real propensity to go down. If you don't know that, if you have an unhealthy or an inaccurate view of how the Christian life works, that, hey, I'm fine. I prayed a prayer. You don't recognize the downward push upon your life. You're going down. However, if you recognize the battle and you recognize that there's a constant upward push that is necessary within the soul, God is willing to supply it. He'll do everything you will need for life and godliness to march up this mountain. 
But you must be plugged into him. You must be given to him. You must maintain a sobriety in this battle. To backslide means to go back to an old behavior, an old manner, an old position of unbelief. Here we are talking about a position of faith. It's like going back and recognizing you have no more confidence against a lion and a bear. You used to. Remember those good old days where you used to know that lions and bears would go down? Suddenly you're trembling again before a lion and a bear. You know what? That's just discouraging. I have to admit. There's nothing quite like losing a position of faith. Okay, now I don't want to focus too much on that. And here's what I would say. You lose a position of faith. You rise up. Repent of it. Come back to your Jesus and say, rebuild me. I need to know that those lions and bears go down. And I believe you're God capable of it. I just need to have it proved in my soul afresh. Yeah, it's discouraging because you already had that position. But don't wallow in the mire. Get up. God will clean you. He will wash you and he will reestablish your faith. But I need you to move forward. You cannot sit there and lick your wounds. Let God heal those wounds. You press forward in this battle. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Boy, that's a truth. This is in the book of Hosea. If any of you know the book of Hosea, it's like classic backsliding type of material. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. Okay, now that's a depressing scripture, I realize. But look at the dot, dot, dot. You see, Hosea doesn't leave us depressed. Hosea leads us to, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. There is hope. And you'll notice this in the Bible if you study backsliding. There's actually a lot to say on backsliding. That God is interested in healing. It's a strange statement. Healing or backsliding. We have a disease in us, a propensity, a downward thrust within us. And God wants to change us to head upward. It's an alteration of our soul, and it's an issue of faith. Do you believe your God? Do you trust him? Do you understand the work of his cross? Are you willing to receive the work of that cross? The rule of the strong man. You guys ever heard the term strong man in scripture? It's used in various ways, in various spots. In Proverbs, it says, strong men retain riches. Okay, now hold on to that scripture. That's very interesting. In other words, a strong man will hold on to that which is entrusted to him. A strong man is the one who's put over a dwelling. And he maintains his armor and his riches. And the only way to get into that house and to gain what that strong man has is you must bind him. You must bind the strong man. If you can bind the strong man, you can plunder him of all his riches. Okay? So a strong man retains riches. Just a simple fact of how things work. Okay? And by the way, Satan is known as a strong man. And if he can be bound, then all that are in his captivity can be set free. Okay? And I'll get into more on that as we go here. This is Jesus talking. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. Okay? Jesus is just giving a principle of strong man here. This is Jesus again. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man. And then he will spoil his house. Okay, it's the same message. When a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. So you can have a strong man, but what happens if a stronger man comes? 
Uh, yeah, that strong man doesn't have much of a hope to protect that which is entrusted to him, does, does he? So the key is not just the strong man, it's who's the stronger man. Now, our natural bent in this discussion is to think about how strong we are to defend our goods. I know how we think. And it's just like, oh boy, I don't feel strong enough because Satan's stronger than me. You're right. You need help in the strong man department. You see, the principle of the strong man comes down to this. You were part of the strong man's house. He had you as one of his commodities, one of his little treasures. However, that strong man was bound. And as a result, you were plundered out of the house of the devil by the strong man. Okay? You are not the strong man. Just, I'm sorry to break that to you. Some of you are like reflecting your muscles as I was talking. Like, strong. I'm not saying you can't be strong in Christ Jesus. But the key is you have to be in the strong man to be strong. You're weak outside of Jesus Christ. And the enemy will plunder all that God gives you until you learn to make your life built upon the cornerstone, upon the management, the kingly authority of the strong man. Because, by the way, the principle of the house is if the enemy wants to get the goods out of your house, you know what he has to do? He has to bind the strong man of your house. If you're the strong man of your house, is he going to have much difficulty? No. However, what if the strong man of your house is Jesus Christ? The enemy would have to bind Jesus Christ to plunder what God has given you in your life. Hmm. Not a bad thought there. I want you to start, to start meditating on it because that's the principle. You are not the strong man. Jesus is. Okay, the growl of the strong man. You want to know what God says inside your soul? It's very similar to what David was crying out in the valley of Elah when he looked at Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Okay, this is what I'm going to propose is the great shout of the strong man within your life. No miscarriage! No miscarriage! Now, you could say no backsliding. It's basically when God starts something, he brings it to completion. If he has begun a work inside of you, I want you to realize what the growl of your great king is. Your strong man, if you will allow him to rule your life, he will shout to the highest heavens and to the deepest depths of hell, no miscarriage in this house. This house will complete its task. But your job is to allow your strong man to lead the house. If you shove him off to the side and say, I'll take care of my house, guess what? You become the strong man. And the principle of the strong man is if a stronger man comes, you will be bound and he can plunder all the goods in your house. That's just the principle of the strong man. So you better get this right. There is one that is stronger than all and all things are under his feet and you better make him your strong man. Otherwise, everything you gain in this spiritual life will be taken from you. The secret to maintaining and keeping that which is entrusted to our care is the strong man, Jesus Christ, being at the helm of our life. Charles Spurgeon says, now this is a quote that Annie Weshi from Haiti sent to us this week. I don't know if it was all our staff that she sent this to. Oh, this is good. Okay, this is just a great quote. She said, this reminds me of Ellerslie, and I have to admit, if Ellerslie could resemble this at all, if the men and women of Ellerslie could resemble this quote, I'm very excited. Pray God to send a few men with what the Americans call grit in them. Men who, when they know a thing to be right, will not turn away or aside or stop. 
Men who will persevere all the more because there are difficulties to meet or foes to encounter. Who stand all the more true to their master because they are opposed. Who the more they are thrust into the fire, the hotter they become. Who just like the bow, the further the string is drawn, the more powerfully it sends forth its arrows. And so the more they are trodden upon, the more mighty will they become in the cause of truth against error. You bring the test of faith, what does it produce? Patience! We get stronger the hotter it gets. You keep the the cloudless sky above us, guess what happens? We get hotter. We get more feisty in our praying. We don't diminish in our faith. We grow stronger in it. The trial of faith produces patience. That's what it does. It's a brave calm and a steadfast courage, immovability, unbreakability. We are not pushed out of our position. Bring hell and high waters. We get stronger through them all. That's Christianity. Isn't that exciting? Some of you are like, I'm not exactly sure if I'd call that exciting. I love it. I really do. Because God wins at every turn. Your job is to allow him. Your job is to allow him to build you in this battle. And when he begins to give you the sound of an abundance of rain, he wants to teach you what to do with that. It's not to just whimsically sing a song, go, oh, isn't that going to be special when God brings rain? It's to go up to Mount Carmel and bend yourself in prayer. And not just bend yourself for one prayer and say, you know what, God, I'm glad I was able to be obedient to you and pray. No, it's to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray until you see the cloud the size of a man's hand begin to form. And then you must be obedient because it'll be just as hard to stop praying as it was to start. Because you know what? There's a tendency to say, I don't know, my prayer is brought about this. I need to keep doing it instead of rising up and saying, it's done. Yet the clouds are still not filling the sky. You still don't have the drop of rain upon your nose. And you have the confidence to rise up and say, it's done. And that's where a little leap for joy comes in. And you know God has brought the rain even though the natural realm has not come into agreement with it yet. It will happen. Watch what my God will do. Summary thus far. If you have already proved God on a point, if you have already been proven by God on a point, then confidently, unreservedly, unabashedly, boldly stand on that point. It's been a test for me at multiple levels. It's been interesting for Leslie and I to work this out. Because there are certain things that seven years ago I was praying for diligently on Mount Carmel. And in a sense, I feel like I've gained a position of faith in regards to them. And so Leslie and I have these discussions like, well, should we pray about it? Because something happens that's very similar to that. And I have this growl that comes out of me. I says, it's already done. We already have our position. And Leslie's sort of feeling awkward, like, well, does that mean we don't pray? And I'm like, well, I'm not against praying. I just don't feel like I need to pray for that. I already know the answer. It's already done. The rains are coming. And yet, what if the person you're talking to doesn't yet know the rains are coming? Do they need to keep praying? It's an interesting tension we deal with. However, this is one of the things God's grooming Leslie and I in, is to know when to bend and when to rise up. The garrison, when territory is gained, a regiment is always left behind to ensure the newly acquired property. So how do you leave behind a garrison? I mean, it's one thing if you have, you know, 100,000 troops under your care and you're like, okay, we just took Jericho. All right, why don't we have 500 of you stay back at the rubble of Jericho and guard it? 
Well, it's one thing if you know how military works, but what if you're just in your own soul? You gain territory in the land of promise in your own life. How do you build a garrison? I mean, it sounds all nice and spiritual and all, but how do you do it practically? You remember your position. You remember. You know what communion is? You remember your position. You in Christ and Christ in you. Do you know? You reckon it true. It is an absolute fact in your existence. I am in Christ Jesus. And if I'm in Christ Jesus, then this is true. This is true. This is true. This is true. And you stand in that position. When something is gained, you remember it. You rehearse it to your souls. This is a constant daily thing for Eric Ludi. I go into a prayer time and I rehearse my position. I rehearse my position over and over and over again. Of course, I get the the luxury of Ellerslie, where I'm constantly rehearsing your position too. I mean, this is just a constant for my life. And as a result, I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference in my spiritual walk. So I'm not just, you know, getting all weak-kneed. I'm constantly remembering what Jesus Christ has accomplished. I love my job. It's a great job. So when you remember your position, you remember the lion and the bear. You remember what is gained, and you don't go back to a position of unbelief in the matter. Territory gained is territory gained. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. You've been given something. Walk in it. Keep it. Hold it. The actions of faith. This is a fun list. Faith has all sorts of different facial expressions. It has all sorts of different actions. Sometimes it bends you, sometimes it rises up. And so what I want to do is I want to go over the different actions of faith. But the actions are slightly different depending on if you're in the time of faith when you're bending and the time of faith when you're rising, okay? So how does faith act during the testing? This is the bending. This is when the clouds are not in the sky. This is when no raindrops are hitting your nose, How does it act when you are praying, when you're bent over on Carmel? Well, you pray. That's one of the things that it shows. Faith prays in such a circumstance. It pleads. It's crying out. It's sweating. In Gethsemane, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. There's an agony. There's a tension of soul. There's an anguish of soul in Gethsemane or on Carmel. It's very real work and labor. Yearning. Wrestling, refusing to let go. Knocking. King, 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 king. Persisting. Embracing the challenge. Smiling at the danger. See, it's not all just dark in the time of prayer. There's actually a little smile that will lift up on the side of your face in between the tears and the sweat of blood. I'll say... Thank you, Lord, for giving me such an opportunity to share in your sufferings. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the intimacy I can have with you. There's a smile even in the midst of it. There's obeying. There's leaping. How in the world did that get in the list? This is such a dark, dismal list, and suddenly there's a leap? Oh, there is. Because what's God going to do? When you're being tested, you know, I I think I said this at the beginning. It says that when you are falsely accused, leap for joy. Well, guess what? That's a trial of your faith. When you're being falsely accused, that's not the time that any of us naturally get real strong in our legs and feel like leaping. We feel like leaping when our football team scores a touchdown. However, do we feel like leaping when we're bent on Carmel and we're saying, Dear Lord Jesus, I don't yet see it. 
then you rise up and you say, thank you, Lord Jesus. And you get air beneath your feet because you will accomplish this. And then you bend back down. You see, you have a job to do. However, that does not mean that joy is eclipsed from your soul. It is for the joy that is set before you that you endure that trial of faith. Laughing. I don't know what it sounds like. I'm not a very good fake laugher. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's terrible. Everyone's like, oh, that sounds wicked. So I, I try not to do it very much. But there is a laughter of soul knowing the position because you've heard the sound of an abundance of rain. You know what God's going to do, but this is not yet the season to see the cloud and to rise up. So there's an agony and anguish and a laughter. The joy never departs the Christian. It doesn't. In the prison cell, there's joy. There's songs in the night. It's not all easy, but that doesn't mean it's absence of the presence of God. Okay, how does faith act in the position? So this is when the cloud forms. How does faith act now? Well, it grits its spiritual teeth, and it says, it's done. And when anyone opposes it in the natural realm, boasts, hey, there's no clouds up here except for one. You say, yeah, but you have to admit, there's one. In other words, it grits its teeth and refuses to take flack from the natural realm. It refuses to back down. My God will prove that he is victorious. It's a position that's been gained. Resolving to not heed doubt. Standing firm and immovable. Shrugging off the questions and concerns. Smirking at the 12 and a half foot giant and knowing his end is at hand. So a little smirking involved too. And of course, leaping and laughing. You know, if you're going to leap and laugh when it's dark, you better leap and laugh when it starts raining. Okay? In other words, this is good stuff. Could you imagine what it must be like to rise up, see that cloud? Oh, get some air beneath those feet and that ground. You have something to rejoice in. You have something to rejoice in just when you hear the sound of an abundance of rain because it's been three and a half long years without it. And so you know what God's going to do. But when you gain the position, oh, leap and laugh. Joy is for the believer to go through every dimension and action of the faith. Okay, remember the armor of God? That's a question. Remember the armor of God? Now, I know most of us have looked at the armor of God as little kid stuff, but here at Ellerslie, we treat it as very adult's material. It's Jesus that clothes us, okay? Now, I'm just going to rehearse the armor. Helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the boots. I always call them boots of iron and brass. Everyone else thinks they're slippers because it's shod your feet. sounds like some wimpy little thing where you have like a shoehorn, you get a little slipper on. It's like some nighttime slippers for Dick Van Dyke, you know? It's that type of a thing. That's not what these are. These are boots of iron and brass, okay? All things are under Christ's feet. The helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the boots, the sword, the shield. Uh Uh-oh, let's get to this bottom one. And there is no provision for the back. You ever thought about that? There is no provision made in the armor of God for your back. Why? Why do you need it? You expecting to turn and run hightail in the midst of this battle? You expecting to go back as a dog to vomit? We're headed this way. We're headed up. We're taking it to the enemy. Why do we need provision for the back? It's when you turn your back and you begin to head downward that you become vulnerable. You aim in the direction of Jesus Christ, and guess what? You have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything has been supplied for you. 
So don't turn back. You have not been given provision for backsliding. Now, when you do backslide, there is provision to turn around again. However, God is going to forewarn you. You turn your back and you are vulnerable to the enemy. So there's only one way to solve this position going downhill. What is it? It's called repent. Turn again and head this way. You're protected when you head towards Jesus Christ. You're protected when you take it to the teeth of the enemy. You're not protected when you turn around and start living for self again and start itching for that vomit that you once had. I have no idea why we think vomit is attractive or why as pigs that have been cleaned we want to go again and wallow in the mud. We're a little strange, us humans. There is a propensity towards going down. But God goes in one direction. If you want to be ruled by the living God, I can tell you where he's going. Jesus went upward. Jesus went up. He ascended, it says. And if you're in Jesus Christ, I can tell you which direction you're going. You're going up, not down. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.